0: Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we've got the Henry B. Wright, Professor of Systematic Theology and the founding director of Yale Center for Faith and Culture, Professor Miroslav Volf. Uh, We'll talk about that more in a second, but first let me remind you of the sponsor for this month. It is... Our friends at Pepperdine, the Pepperdine University Bible Lectures, May 3rd through 6th in beautiful Malibu, California. We'll be discussing the theme, Cruciform, Living in Light of the Jesus Story. Now we invite you to join over 200 presenters and 4,000 guests on the campus of Pepperdine University. Which, by the way, there there actually is inexpensive room and board options available with nearly all of them having the view of the beautiful Pacific Ocean. Now, one other view you'll have is Dr. N.T. Wright on the stage, along with other speakers like the the famous Ruby Bridges. Um, if you don't know her story, you need to Google her. Uh, she's outstanding. Greg Boyd will be there. Dave Kinneman from the Barna Group, Greg Boyle. Um, you'll also recognize a few names like Richard Beck. Stormont will be there. Um, myself, and a lot of other people, which you need to know. So I hope you will join me May 3rd through 5th – excuse me, May 3rd through 6th in Malibu, California, and uh, go check it out. Uh, also, um, let me tell you about this podcast. So uh, Miroslav Volf, super uh, amazing, accomplished um, professor, author, academic, thinker, um, There's a little bit of issues with the uh, audio in this. Uh, I don't think it's actually on the recording, but when I was talking to him, I was having a real tough time hearing him. And so the interview is not my best work, but he still does a great job talking. It has nothing to do with him. I just um, wasn't really happy with uh, trying to communicate with someone when I didn't really hear too well. Uh, That had nothing to do with him. It was me just... With a different application, I was using for recording and all that stuff. But anyway, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Anyways, you should. Miroslav Wolf talking about his new book, Flourishing. So here we go. Let's uh, check it out. Okay. All right, friends. Welcome back to the show. Today we have with us the esteemed Professor Volf. Thank you for joining us on the show, sir.
1: Uh, glad to be here. Uh,
0: where are you? Uh, where are we calling you from today? I am in uh, my home in Guilford, Connecticut. Guilford, Connecticut. How long have you lived in Connecticut?
1: Uh, I've been in Connecticut since 1998. Uh, that that, uh, that was the uh, summer 1998 when I was hired as a professor at Yale. And you previously
0: were at uh, Fuller, is that
1: right? Yeah, I was at Fuller, uh, teaching systematic theology for about seven years. And, of course, I studied at Fuller in 77
0: to 79. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, for those who don't know, you were... Uh, You grew up in the former Yugoslavia. I did. uh, I was
1: born. Yep. Go ahead.
0: And how old were you when you came uh, to study in the States?
1: I was. um, I think I was not quite twenty-one when I arrived to to Pasadena. Prior to that, I studied uh, theology and philosophy uh, in um, uh, in Croatia.
0: Okay. Outstanding. Well. uh, for those who don't know, you have a new book out that we are excited to talk about, Flourishing. When, uh, what was the, uh, the idea behind uh, writing this book? It seemed like uh, one of the things you were trying to do, using the metaphor that you use in the book, about getting rid of the fog between world religions. So how did the interest in navigating the always tricky predicament of dealing with different world religions become such an interesting subject to you?
1: Well, I think the the book arose out of the course that I taught for a number of years at Yale, and the course was called Religion, or Faith, in fact, and uh, Globalization. And um, as I was studying uh, globalization processes, as I was studying what makes, so to speak, the world run uh, today, uh kind of contracting the space uh speeding up the time uh, in which we uh, which we live, it seems to me that it is uh driven a good deal of it is driven uh by a certain account uh, of what constitutes a good life, what constitutes human flourishing, what does it mean to succeed um, as a human being and uh um, obviously when you contrast this or compare this with what uh, major world religions uh, are saying, or first for me as a committed Christian, what uh, Christian faith is saying, uh there's a very simple line uh that comes up, uh, shows up in the Old Testament at a very key point, and it shows up also at a very key point in the New Testament, in the temptation of Jesus, where Jesus says to the tempter, Uh, human beings do not live by bread alone, uh, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. And I'm thinking that increasingly our world uh, is after living by bread alone and then this kind of transcendent dimension, our stretching out toward God is being downplayed. And uh, I think to our detriment, the detriment of our Way of living to the detriment of our ability to uh, be in solidarity with people across the globe, uh, to the detriment of our relationship with the environment.
0: Mm -hmm. So you have a line in the book that the greatest temptation isn't worshiping false gods, but to live by bread alone. And for many of us, we've we've heard um, that line in the Bible a few times, but we've always thought that worshiping other gods was the big issue. Um, but what do you think makes our time right now so um, so predisposed predispos- predisposed to having a view in which the material world is all there is, or as you would say, that we're living just by bread alone?
1: Well, I, I think there are a number of factors. Uh, obviously, um, uh, there is uh, kind of there are secular worldviews. Uh, I personally think that there are less significant. Uh, than uh, than they're made to be, but there's also this uh, immense dominance of markets in our lives and uh, for all the good that markets do, they also kind of glue our attention to the needs of ordinary uh, life for the most part. Uh, we live around uh, producing and consuming and consuming more and always new gadgets and new products, which we often enjoy, but uh, which at the same time keep us uh, running uh, while uh, in some profound sense always remaining in the same place. And this incredible running Uh, And staying in the same place is one of our big, big uh, problems because we run, again, to our own detriment, the detriment of people around us, the detriment of the world. And yet we are not gaining tremendously a lot from this. Mm -hmm.
0: So you, you have a line in the book where you say that as a Christian, you see the course of world history And you're going to say, ultimately decided in the contest of the desires in people's hearts. Is it for the God above the world or the idols of this world? And so the temptation, it seems, is just to to live as though the world is all there is and you forget there is something transcendent. This doesn't seem to be an issue that's just for people who are, quote, unquote, uh, not a part of a religion. But it seems that even people within religion are constantly forgetting this do you th- what do you think there is the solution for people to not live as though it's just bread alone that gives us life
1: well i i, I think uh the solution uh in many ways is uh return all uh, to the divine source of our life to god uh for us as christians this is uh, the truth of god's revelation in jesus christ uh a return uh, to God not simply as a help to achieve some worldly end, but for the purposes of God's own, our relationship with God mm-hmm. itself. God God matters to us not simply as a source of the candies that we eat, and I think the pro- part of the problem with uh, Christianity, other religions uh, as well, is that it has been uh, co-opted um, in a significant way for fundamentally uh, secular kinds of sense. By secular, I mean either for, in order to legitimize and stabilize the state. Um, God is with us when we are Engaging in our uh, our struggles with other states, or when we want to impose certain certain things uh, within uh, one state, uh, our state, or sometimes uh, um, to material kinds of ends, uh, so that God help us, helps us perform, gives us strength, help us when we fail, and all of these things are true. But when you reduce God to mere means, you have ungodded the God. That's not quite the right term, right? You have kind <laughs> of secularized secularized yeah. God. And God becomes your tool to accomplish your end rather than yeah. the other way around.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I can see that, especially in America right now during a uh, political season in which um, – Candidates obviously are trying to win uh, the "quote unquote" you know conservative vote, and you know right now Trump is bringing in Palin to uh, to advocate for him so that he can get in with the religious groups. So we definitely see that being a motivating factor in politics with the way that people are motivated and how people get into office. Um, where you grew up um, didn't have the same sort of democracy as we did. Um, and in the country you live in now. What way did you see it, um, or, or did you see it at all, uh, when you grew up in former Yugoslavia? Uh,
1: let, let me just maybe uh, add um, a comment to uh, to your kind of tying religion to, uh, to more conservative uh, political agendas. And uh-huh. it's true that, that primarily in this country, uh, that this is how kind of religion is instrumentalized. It can be instrumentalized in other ways as well, right? Okay. So, um, and it, it, it's the instrumentalization itself that is, I think, uh, problematic uh, rather than thinking of God as being significant cut as God and coming to our good, our ordinary world good as God. So God's uh, importance uh, as God, I think, is fundamental. Now, now to your question, where I grew up, I I grew up in uh, what was unofficially a socialist society ruled by the uh, communist uh, Communist Party. um, My father was a Pentecostal minister. We were kind of a minority of a minority of a minority in uh, politically in in a kind of state that was dominated by the Communist Party in a culture that was uh, dominated either by Orthodox or Catholic forms of uh, Christianity and Protestantism, especially uh, our kind of Protestantism was uh, was on the market.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, okay, so we can go back to, to what you are saying before. And I, you talked about how there's other ways that can be utilized, how God can be secularized, as, as some might say. As someone who's in the business of religion and God um, that seems to be a terrifying thing to me um, what are ways that we can articulate faith so that that isn't what happens where faith isn't commo- you know God isn't this commodity that we're using to get what we want what are what are ways to think about faith differently than that uh,
1: I'm, I think the first uh, first thing is to Uh, I believe, articulates that uh, human beings, uh, and make clear to ourselves, and if we are in a kind of religious business, I'm a theologian, and you're a pastor, uh, to articulate also to those uh, with whom we are in contact, whom whom we serve, that human beings are fundamentally oriented toward God. We are earth things we live as material uh, beings we need uh, material things we need one another we are f- fragile we are finite and in all all those ways uh, we need um, varieties of things of this world in order to survive we need bread uh, in uh, in in other words uh, but at the same time that's not all who we are and we when we think of ourselves that this is all who we are when we make this big mistake in instrumentalizing God, when we think of ourselves as primarily oriented toward God and having God as the source of our existence and be the source of our profoundest identity, then I think we can see how it is a a good thing for us to be related to God, and it is a good thing for us uh, for the way in which we live our world, uh, our life, uh, lives in this world. It increases our satisfaction with uh, the with, uh, with ordinary life. It improves, so to speak, the ordinary life without needing us constantly to make adjustments and, and actual material uh, improvement.
0: Yeah, I-, I love the way you say in the book when you say we enjoy things the most when we experience them as sacraments, as carriers of the presence of another. And so I love the way that you articulate this idea that what you see isn't just what it is, but there's something else that's behind it. And I think that's a beautiful picture. Um, yeah, and, you and think- when you
1: think of when you think of consumer consumer goods, uh, generally we kind of value them for what they are, and they end up having a shelf life, uh, like the toy uh, toys of my kids when they were when they were ten, right, or yeah. or, or when they're when they eight. You know, for two hours you buy them in Walmart for two hours they play with it, and then. They're in this big pile of things that have been uh, dis- discarded because they matter simply as this little interesting gadgety, gadgety thing. Our entire culture uh, circles around this kind of relationship to, uh, to things, and it's a deeply, deeply problematic uh, thing because then the pile of discarded things just grows, and uh, our level of our satisfaction is pretty much straight and going down.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so... We see this understanding of God that we're meant to be in relationship with him. What, what makes us significant is not just that God made us, as you say, but that we're made to be in relationship with him. And so we see, um, we see that what creates the flourishing, obviously that's the title of your book, um, is the fact that we are in relationship to God. And so you see religion as a very positive thing that causes <clears throat> the type of flourishing that we're created to have by being in relationship with him. Now, n- not everyone would ascribe to the same level of uh, praise for religion. Some see religion as a thorn in the side of the world's progress and societies that it causes wars. How, how do you articulate that that religion itself, and we're not even talking about one specific religion at this point, is actually beneficial for the flourishing of humanity?
1: Well, so, so I first... I- I generally tend not to think, notwithstanding the title of the uh, of the book, I tend not to speak of religion in in singular. I tend to speak of, of religions, and a variety of what I call their um, secondary religions or world uh, religions, are really uh, a kind of a different ways of understanding how transcendence. Uh, not in all religions, God has primacy, uh, over our ordinary life, and that comes to the good of, uh, the ordinary, uh, ordinary life. So I think that basic idea, uh, not bread alone, but, uh, kind of transcendence by God, that, that's, I think, what, what I see is uniting, uh, various, various world religions. Obviously, there are going to be, uh, strong contestations among religions. Uh, as to what is the nature of this transcendent one, uh, or even whether it's appropriate to call transcendent one or simply transcendent. What is the nature, uh, or what's a, its or his nature, her nature? Uh, what various will have different uh, answers to even that question. Um, what is the relationship of, of that to the world? And so you will have a lots of debates among uh, among religions, even when religions are at their at their best. And I think those debates, if carried on um, responsibly, are a good thing, uh, because they can they are the form of human our struggle for the truth of, of uh, human human existence. Right? Obviously, I think that uh, the truth. Of human existence is embodied, incarnated in the in, in the in the life and teaching of Jesus Christ, who is um, God made uh, made flesh, uh, and that's going to be uh, uh, for debate in this uh, relationship between uh, between religions. But that's when religions are at their at their best, right? But often religions aren't at their best. We Christians aren't at our best. Uh, other religions aren't uh, at their best either and then religions um, often conflict, conflict with one another. They are the source of deep enmities between people. Um, and then the question, I think, becomes, in uh, what situations do religions become just such uh, sources of conflict and legitimizers of, of conflict?
0: But you picture in the book that religious communities not only can be agents of reconciliation and promoters of just peace, but they have been and they continue to be. And so yeah. you're pointing for what you're calling a universalistic vision uh, in a pluralistic world, and that's religions have to learn how to advocate for this. And so y- you picture religions being able to all get along with one another. Is that fair to say?
1: Well, I picture religions uh, I pictured, uh, uh, religions that, I'm, that I'm describing in this book as having – internal resources to get along with one another in a sense to contend in a peaceful way for the truth of their vision of life, right? Um, But then religions having resources to contribute to peaceful coexistence and to betterment uh, and to our flourishing is not religions actually doing that? And if you look at the history of religions, if you look at the present, the present uh, of religions, uh, they're very much ambiguous, uh, um, ambiguous phenomenon, you know, uh, when, uh, when I was uh, teaching this course on, on, faith and globalization, it was on the anniversary. Like, the first time I taught it, of course, started only on anniversary of 9-11. Well, there, there's your uh, there's your proof if you needed one that religion can be deadly. Uh, at the same time, it's easy to point uh, to circumstances where they have contributed tremendously to uh, to the good uh, of society. As I was growing up, I just uh, uh, heard the news bit about this um, uh, missionary um, uh, in Africa who's been who's been uh, killed. Uh, recently, who worked on this orphanage, a tremendous, um, a tremendous good that was motivated by the faith uh, of this of this man and uh, his widow. Apparently, is going to return and continue his work. Uh, that's also, uh, really.
0: You said that internal, uh, internally in religions, there is resources to do this. Uh, one of those, I think, that yeah. you point to in the book is the golden rule for Christianity. What are, what are some other resources that religions have that are seen as resources that can be used to help religions in a pluralistic world uh, coexist?
1: Yeah, so, so I, I, think, I think that uh, that world uh, religions, so these secondary religions, uh, because they transcend a particular locality and particular culture and address themselves to all human beings everywhere uh just for that reason they are now i'll, I'll put it in a, in a kind of technical uh and, and neutral uh vocabulary they are cultural systems distinct from politics so something like the distinction between religion and politics is a very important uh very very important uh, feature of these religions to which they are not always faithful Right, that they always, they sometimes blend religion and politics, and then become violent. So that's one of the one of the areas. If that's true, that all of them have resources and elements that will emphasize uh, that they are distinct from, uh, from from politics, that will help tremendously uh, when it comes to uh, when it comes to um, uh, peaceful coexistence. And second, I believe that in all of them, one way or the other, freedom of religion is emphasized. Now, all of them have also been ambivalent about freedom of religion. Christianity is a very good example, right? We haven't affirmed the freedom of religion uh, until uh, some segments of of the church, haven't affirmed it all the way until the the second half of the 20th century. right? And through centuries, we have denied the freedom of religion. And yet, I think if you read the Gospels, if you read the Epistles, uh, and if you read the first centuries of the Christian tradition, uh, you will see that freedom of religion is fundamental to Christian faith. You combine freedom of religion, that is that every person has the right to choose which religion, which way of life uh, he or she ought to embrace, and embrace faith with heart rather than under compulsion. And if you think that there is a that, that there's a good argument for a distinction from, between religion and politics, I think you have great resources already there for kind of structural relationship between religion in such a way, that everybody will have equal rights, equal voice in a common environment in which we find uh, find ourselves uh, because we won't impose uh, the political means, uh, uh, opinions, and others.
0: Yeah. So as we're allowing for there to be religious freedom and people get to choose, is there a way for someone to contend that their vision of the true life or the good life uh, as best told is best told in their story, in their religion, uh, with still allowing for there to be freedom. Can can people push for um, conversions to their religion still and maintain a um, a healthy pluralistic society?
1: Oh, I, I I definitely think so. I think I sometimes it's a little complicated term that I'm going to use right now, uh, well, but it kind of summarizes uh, how one uh, how I see uh, how I see things. Uh, and that is, we, we live in the environment uh, with, with, with world religions um, uh, of contending particular universalisms. Okay. Each one of these religions makes universally true claims, right? Okay. doesn't mean they're actually true. It means that they make truth claims, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which are then in contrast with others, and that's why they're contending with one another. And each one of them is also a particular. They're, they're making these claims from a particular from a particular uh, standpoint. I think uh, each one of them uh, not only has the right, but it's the, in the nature of that faith to make truth claims. But making truth claims of the universal nature is, by itself, already a mode of witness, a mode of. Persuading, wanting to persuade the other person to see things the way you see things. So I don't think that uh, properly understood, responsible evangelism, as we Christians would say, is at all probable. Not indeed. That's what Christian faith. Christian faith is a missionary religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Islam is also a missionary religion. The question isn't whether it should be a missionary religion or not. Uh, question is uh, what kind of missionary religion it ought to be what ought, what ought to be the ethics the morality of uh, of uh, of witness this is what discussion can be can be profitably carried carried on but i think mm-hmm. uh, I think um, uh, bearing witness is really that's the only way in which the, these religious traditions by the way also secular traditions too bear witness bearing witness is the only way in which they can bring to bear their visions of the good life on the lives of individuals, on the lives of communities, on the lives of the, of the world. That's a good thing. That's their strength. That's the contribution that they make. <clears throat>
0: uh, that makes a whole lot of sense. It seems that we should be able to civilly um, present our truth claims. We should be able to civilly uh, express how we understand life is intended to live. And how we are to relate to the divine uh, without being uh, combative with one another. It seems like it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> why why doesn't that happen? Why do, why do we need books to tell us to do this when that seems to be such an obvious thing to do?
1: Well, I, I think there are obviously, uh, obviously, um, obviously when we make truth claims, especially when we make truth claims in the context of the common life of multiple communities uh, together – These truth claims aren't just uh, intellectual statements. They're also, uh, we are also through them vying for political power, for space, right? We're occupying a certain form of space. It's going to be contested not simply at the intellectual level, but the level of Kind of push against the particular way of living of uh, of people, right? That's what the, that's what this this thing is uh, all about. That makes us very uncomfortable. We like the way in which we live. We don't like other people to to meddle with our ways of uh, living. We don't like to feed uh, kind of uh, social power, political power, political power, and yet the life of human beings is made up precisely of such negotiating of relationship, uh relationships of power. I think with religions as well, if you have something that you uh, that is sacred, um, that orients uh, in an ultimate sense your entire entire life, it's easy to think that you are somehow justified in imposing this on others, or if you somehow feel that this has been uh, threatened, that this has been called into question, or you feel very, very defensive, uh, of this. And I think we maybe need to learn the lesson, religion needs to learn the, the lessons that God does not need defenders.
0: Hmm. Right? Yeah.
1: That the truth of, of faith doesn't need, uh, kind of political arm to, to, to defend it. And that, uh, I think we need to kind of establish regime of mutual respect and equality. Uh, and then, let the process monitor the processes and let the processes processes go and trust that uh there is something for Christians we would say something like a common grace that when I engage with other people around the matters of truth, beauty, and goodness, somehow that there is also resonance that somehow that God is at work uh there, and that's kind of a background if you want for this entire vision But uh, the background for entire uh, entire vision is that. Even in, through secular means, through other religious means, even there God is at work. Not in the same way as in the church. God is at work in the way in which God is uh, at work in the world. Uh, and we're not God at work in the, in the world, the uh, world wouldn't be, let alone be, uh, a good uh, a good place.
0: Yeah. And if God is at work everywhere, then we don't have this sense of obligation that we've got to Force things to happen for God. You said earlier that we don't have to defend God. Yeah. God doesn't need defenders. Um, there's the old Adams yeah, that exactly. um, when people act like they're defending God, they typically out, act very ungodly. And yeah, if we don't yeah, have exactly. to, de- yeah, if we don't have to defend God, then then we can maybe interact a little bit more civilly.
1: And we don't have to occupy territory for God, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> sometimes we sometimes it's a defensive posture, but sometimes it's a it's a it's an aggressive posture. Uh, occupying certain territory, uh, for God. Um, we don't force anybody to, uh, to embrace faith. We offer it and they respond to it. This is, yeah. this was, this was Jesus' way. This was the apostles' way. And it's no accident that it was there, right? Because Christian faith, uh, Jesus himself, as well as first, uh, first disciples and apostles were marginal communities. They were not in power, imposing things on others. They were marginal community. They were offering a vision, proclaiming enthusiastically, um, sometimes not, uh, you know, uh, as as uh, as all of us always do. Uh, and uh, I mean the early church in a problematic place as well. But but it's that's that's exactly the right thing uh, to do, namely to proclaim, bear witness, and leave to other people the opportunity to make uh, make their decision.
0: Yeah. It makes a whole lot of sense to me. I'm on board. Okay. Yeah,
1: sounds good. But you know, I I think I think kind of I don't know what your heritage is. America is, a, I think, a great country just because uh, this has become a, a kind of almost like a defining feature uh, of America. I think America is great uh, today in this regard because we haven't uh, taken on uh, the the uh, legacy of John Winthrop in this regard, right? Where it uh, where it was. A, a, State imposed uh, religion in a variety of ways, but in some ways, more or less, the legacy of uh, of uh, Roger
0: yeah. No, I think that is definitely one of the uh, the beautiful things about the uh, American experience is that um, for many of us, we understand this is a melting pot, and there are people that come and come to be part of our country from all over the world. And um, I think this is a beautiful picture of how we can relate with everyone. Now, yeah, at the end of yeah. your book, your your epilogue you reference Nietzsche and you talk about the two kind of pillar, I guess the two extremes of what Nietzsche calls passive nihilism. Uh, And you tell a story from Dante's, um, the divine comedy where a guy gets to the very end, beholds God, and then everything that he saw before all the earthly joys become uh, irrelevant. And so you have the one perspective that you you get to the end and everything doesn't matter anymore because you've seen God. And then the other side of that, you have what, uh, what he calls the last men. And basically these seem to be people that I would almost describe as um, uh, people who have no relation to God. And so everything that they do is for their own pleasure and they determine what's right or wrong. And yes. so y- you, have, you have this really great line where, where you kind of pull these two separate what, what seem to be dichotomies together. And you say in, typically in choosing between meaning and pleasure, meaning being the, the nihilist who see everything as meaningless until God and then the pleasure, uh, we always make the wrong choice. Why is it when we choose between medium pleasure, we always make the wrong choice?
1: Well, I think the the line after that goes uh, that uh, that the meaning without uh, without pleasure is oppressive, and then the pleasure without meaning is kind of is empty, right? Mm-hmm. And that's in a sense you, you see this uh, played out uh, on on the world uh, on the world scene. You see these kind of uh, fundamentalist uh, traditions that with a clinched uh, fist they, they they work to kind of realize the divine meaning uh, meaning in, in the world and in the process kind of destroy uh, destroy the world. Uh, on the other hand, you see these kind of uh, whether they are walls of the Wall Street kind of uh, libertine high achievers, or they're your ordinary couch potatoes, you know, who uh, to whom all exertion is too uh, too much, and who are simply out uh, for 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 little pleasures, seems it seems like it's empty, and that that's I think this kind of emptiness, which I think it's in some ways the, the more 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 dangerous. Um, um, Kind of phenomena this, this kind of emptiness is is the feature of our relationship to to things whether we are we we use expensive or or cheap uh things and I make a kind of passing uh reference to uh to pornography and the relationship to proper enjoyment of things and uh, and the kind of ways in which we tend to do that is the same as the relationship or analogous to the relationship between pornography and real sex right um, these these kinds of the the the, the thing that leaves emptiness, I and mean, then you have to always up the ante. You have to have more. You have to have better. And there's never end. This is kind of a bad infinity. That the uh, more you get, the more dissatisfied you become, and you want more. And you're kind of addicted to uh, to the uh, to uh, to these uh, experiences that you have. And uh, but. At the same time, they leave you
0: empty. And so, this all ties back to we were created to be in relation to God, and that we were not meant to live on bread alone. But in our connection to God, in some ways, we flourish in the way that we are created to. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right.
0: Yeah. So you say the the conviction that cradles the entire book is that the unity of meaning and pleasure, which we experience as joy, is given. Uh, with God, who is love?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: the whole book. Yeah, there it is, just one sentence right there. Uh, it's it's God, and so y- you you have this beautiful picture of God as the source of life, as it's intended to live, and that once we do this, there is a way. Even when we have, dare I say, competing religions that have different pictures of how one relates with God, they are able to have a peaceful world in a pluralistic society. Even when we understand that God to be a little bit different,
1: or substantially different. Well, I, I think uh, I think I think that's a, that's a, that's a, a fleshing out. What you're describing right now is a fleshing out uh, of what is the potential of the Christian uh, Christian faith. Uh, in in uh, in introduction and epilogue, I write uh, representing. I, I don't write about relationship between other religions, among other religions, and globalization i write uh as myself as uh committed uh, committed uh simply committed christian but the christian uh, faith and uh, i think this is the vision uh of uh, of the christian uh, of the christian faith i think what what the book contains is, is a kind of invitation to christians to think of us christians to think of our faith and live our faith that way it, it contains also invitation to um, adherents of other religions to see whether, in their religions, whether I'm right that in their religions there are these resources that will enable them uh, to articulate their relationship to other religions and to the world in such a way that we could uh, live in peaceful in peaceful environment, and then we will contend. Uh, um, about what kind of relationship between God and the world needs to be there for one to be able to think in terms of the unity of meaning and pleasure. I would say you have to have God, who is a Trinitarian God and who is love and who creates world as a gift to us and so forth, right? So I'll give the, the whole spiel. Of the character of the Christian faith, uh, and the relationship of God to the, to the world as articulated in, uh, uh, in Christian faith in the, in the story of Jesus Christ. Uh, some other uh, religions might disagree with it. That's fine. Nietzsche will disagree with it. That's fine. Too. That's fine too. As long as we, we contend about the shape of our living together. In the environment, and then uh, you know, make political decisions. Obviously, we vote and we decide how it's going to uh, how it's going to end up. Uh, there is no way to avoid conflict in a sense. It, there is a way to make conflict productive, and that's what this book was uh, trying to do. Hmm.
0: So, there's no way to get around conflict, but you can make conflict productive. What way? That's, can conflict... that's...
1: Yeah.
0: No, I was gonna say, what way can conflict be productive?
1: Well, it can be productive in a sense that, uh, that um, uh, for instance, um, I don't know if you've had experiences of dialogues with, uh, with either uh, secular uh, um, uh, ideologies or with, uh, with other religions. I've had both. Uh, you know, I wrote a dissertation on Karl Marx. I have uh, for years studied, uh, studied Nietzsche. I have benefited tremendously. Uh, from it. Do I agree? Am I Nietzsche? Absolutely not. Am I Marxist? No, I'm not. Have I learned from Nietzsche? Absolutely yes. Have I learned from art? Uh you bet I have. And so I think that these varieties of um of accounts of who we as human beings are and how we ought to live, they can enrich us. Um and some might prove to be aspects of them well, from my perspective prove to be detrimental. There are many things in Nietzsche that I think are are plain not just wrong but also detrimental to proper, proper living. I have to live with the fact that Nietzsche, uh, is there and, uh, that there are folks who embrace this kind of, uh, position and I have to live positively with Nietzsche. Right. And that's my faith pushes me to do uh, that. That's the productive relationship that can, that can be there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And obviously, uh, you know, My experience is you interact with people who might have different worldviews than you, and I think it helps refine your own as well as helps you learn from other people. I mean, you, you learn there's a lot of truths in other people's perspective, and that it can help you uh, experience the world in a better, fuller way by understanding that. So I, I think your, your assessment is right on. Well, Professor Wolf, thank you so much for your time. Uh, the book Flourishing, Why We Need Religion in a Globalized World, it's um, a book I highly recommend. So thank you again for your time, sir. I really appreciate it.
1: Great. Great to talk to you. All the best.
0: Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.